we, we have this vision at, at Element that uh, we want people to live the gospel in our lives. It's not a Sunday morning thing. We gather, gather like this, and it's great, and it's a lot of fun. We get together. We worship God together. But it's more important how we worship God outside of these walls and what we do there. And so part of what we want to do is we want to be involved in church planting. Because the more churches that can get out there that live in a real way, the more people understand that, how God wants to infuse our lives in every single way, and not just on a Sunday morning. You know, He wants us to live and reach and touch the world that, that He loves. And so He places us here as His hands and feet to do that. And one of the best ways to do this is through church planting. Our board saves part of the income that comes in from you guys every week, and we set it aside for the purpose of this. Uh, Jason and Rachel Long and their kids... Uh, they, are, they are going to Egypt, and they are going to do indigenous church planting in Egypt. And, uh, boy, she's just holding on to you for dear life. She drew me a picture, I guess, in first service, and she's like, I want to give it to him. So he goes in the back, and she just, she's just holding on to her mom. Give it to him. <laughs> so I took it. That's why she hangs on. Anyway, uh, so they're going to go, and they're actually going to be involved in church planting in Egypt. And we, as the board of Element, are actually supporting them in that endeavor. Uh, you two can separately, if you want to, you can talk to them after we're done. But we wanted you to know what we're doing and, and where they're going so that you can kind of maybe pray for them. Uh, the people on the board, I want you guys to come up, and we're actually going to pray for them. Uh, they leave in, what, two weeks, a week and a half? One week. One week. I've been to Egypt. Even the Pizza Hut isn't that good. <laughs> yeah. So I want you guys to pray with us. Father, we lift up the Long family as they, go, as they go to Egypt. And I ask that you would make their ministry very, very fruitful. That you would have people uh, and lives changed because of their focus and their vision and their commitment to who you are. God, we ask that your spirit would come and you would bless them deeply and strongly. <laughs> and that Abigail would quit playing with my finger. <laughs> Father, we ask that you would take them and their lives and make that into something beautiful because only through you do our lives become what they're supposed to be. Amen. Amen. The whole time she's got my finger and she's like this. And I'm like, Jesus, uh, Jesus uh, who am I praying to? What am I? This is great. Let's say first service, I uh, actually wrote two verses down wrong. They're right now, so we're going to be good. All right, why don't you guys stand with me, reading God's Word. This is Matthew chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. And it says, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So it's fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Let's pray. Father, this morning... I ask that your spirit would teach us, that we would understand what you are trying to say today through the simplicity of a simple parable, that you would take us from where we are to where we need to be so when we walk out of here, our lives are lived in such a way that they honor you and they love people. Amen. Have a seat. If you've been here any amount of time, I keep telling you guys, we're going to start the Gospel of John in September, but everybody's kind of on vacations all throughout the summer. Everybody kind of gets back together, and we all start moving forward kind of in September. So in September, we'll start uh, the Gospel of John. It's going to be a whole lot of fun. <laughs> um, and But right now, for these five weeks in August, we're going to do a short series of the parables. Last summer, I did a series of eight parables from a Jewish perspective of how Jew Jesus would have actually intended his hearers to hear what he was saying. And people really liked it. 
and at least so they tell me. So I figure over the month of August, I'll do five more before we actually hit into uh, the book of John. Uh, Eric and James are both going to help me with this. They're both going to have one in the middle of it. So if mine are really bad, you can look forward to them. It'd be great. Now, I, I know what people think when they think the parables. You probably think the same thing I used to. Your eyes kind of glaze over, you know, because you think you've heard it all before. It's like going to the movie Titanic thinking it's going to end differently. Right, it's, oh, I know, I know how this works out. It's like, I've heard these so many times. It's like watching reruns of The Love Boat. If your IQ is under 50, they're okay. If it's not, it's, it's not okay. But the parables are this whole thing. They are much deeper than you and I can even imagine. Now, there's an interesting question that needs to be asked every once in a while, and that is, how did Jesus teach the majority of people? Parables. Right. You guys are so smart. Okay. <laughs> Now, if I had to choose a teacher to emulate, it would be Jesus, so that's what we're going to do. Now, it's not that Jesus didn't know how to teach, and so he just walked around using stories because he couldn't figure out a better way. This form, this, this narrative form that, that Jesus would use in parables, rabbis would use that for ages. Jews called storytelling to illustrate a message, agada. Everybody say that, agada. Yeah, I got it. I got it. I, is it in agada de vida. Okay, seeing who's older here and who's not just... You know, that's great. Jesus creates these word pictures so we would understand more of God and the spiritual world involved. That's what he does. Now, I'm going to start with the premise that I started the first series with, and that is much of what you know about the parables is wrong. Woo! Great. All right. So, and I'll just explain this and, and hopefully get to where we're going. And i got like two pages of introduction before I get to the thing. But we're going. Uh, there is an Israel, a, a group of people that were devoted to help people like you and I figure out how God wants us to live. These people are called rabbis. Now, today, in, in one sense, we try and want people to know, help us how to hear God, to follow God, to know what God wants for our lives. That'd be rabbis then. But today, there isn't really a lot of those. So we're like, how do we do this? Christian publishers have found a way to capitalize on this, and they start selling Bibles in every flavor and variety. You've got like the Reformation Bible, the Couples Bible, the Leadership Bible, the Student Bible, the Prophecy Bible, the Children's Bible, the End Times Bible, the Bald Man's Bible, how to pick up... How to pick up hot chicks, Bible. No, it's not there. But if it was, you guys would buy it and be like, oh, yeah, I need to pick up hot chicks. Jesus said, go and do likewise. Yeah, you know, and you're like raring to go. I should write that. I'd make a ton. What we all want is we want help to, that we would help to know and understand who God is. That's, that's what we want. And that is where a rabbi came in. They understood that their role in their community, it was to study a text. It was to meditate on a text. It was to discuss a text. It was to pray about a text and help people understand what it means to live out a text. The highest ideal wasn't to know all this theology. The highest ideal was to live out what God calls us to live out. And anybody ever see The Matrix? Okay. And What's wrong with you who haven't? No. Uh, in, in The Matrix... The, they like, I need to learn how to fly a helicopter. So this guy puts a thing in, it downloads to their brain, they can fly a helicopter. It doesn't work like that. Okay? The, a rabbi's job was to really figure out how, how to help you fly the helicopter. Okay? It was to take this knowledge they were giving you and find out how to actually live that thing out. Uh, turn to the book of Leviticus. You're like, wow, I thought this was Jesus and his parables. Right, turn to the book of Leviticus. I'm going to give you a basic verse. Leviticus chapter 19. I know, you go to church excited to learn about the book of Leviticus. It's what you read every morning in your quiet time. Uh, Leviticus 19, 18. And it says this. 
Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, does anybody have a problem with the basic concept of loving your neighbor? Not really. And you're like, well, maybe my neighbor, but not anybody else's neighbor. It's okay. We nobody really has a problem with it. Even people who don't believe in God don't have a problem with loving your neighbor. But for a rabbi, the question would be like, well, how do you live this? You know, what does it mean to love? What isn't love? Who defines what love is and what isn't? And, and who's your neighbor? And who isn't your neighbor? And who defines who your neighbor is and, and who your neighbor isn't? And that's what they would do. They were interpreters that would come and that would help people to understand how to live out a text even as simple as that. So you and I could get it. Now, when Jesus' disciples, what did they call Jesus? Rabbi. Rabbi. Exactly. And so Jesus came. And he lived with his disciples and he trained them so they could learn how to live the life that God had called them to live. That was the point. Rabbis would help people understand God's character better by using parables, by using Agatha. So I want you to remember three things as we hit this, that all scripture is about God. All scripture is about God. We call the Bible God's word. Scripture is there to reveal who God is. Second thing, Jewish theologians would teach about God through real life stories and illustrate the divine nature of God through those. And the third thing, when the disciples didn't understand something that Jesus said, because sometimes the parables went poop, they would ask him in private, and he would explain to them what they meant. So you follow me so far? Got it? Okay. Now, this is all my introduction. I'm really, I'm not sorry. You guys need to learn this stuff. Okay. So the problem is, what religion were Jesus' first followers? Jews. Exactly. It's not like Christians with the King James Version. No. They were Jews. Okay. <laughs> And, and so what happens is Jesus is explaining concepts to Jews that they would only, the Jews at that point with a Hebrew nationality and a mindset would only understand. So he's explaining these things to them. Like if I wanted to explain things like, if I said the word spoiled, what would you think of? Huh? What would you say? Okay. Spoiled. Oh, plunders of war. Like, what? I didn't even think about that. <laughs> what? Food kids okay so but if i said not me other kids so if i said spoiled but then i said nanny 911 you guys would go oh and you know what i was talking about right well most of you right if i talked about bad parenting you think about all these things but if i said the osbornes or gene simmons family jewels you'd be like uh, well most of you that okay if i said how to have your life implode and then i use the example of britney spears <laughs> Say so you'd be, oh, and you'd get it. If I talked about the insurity of life, and then I talked about school shootings, you'd go, oh, and you'd get it. You all understand because you're part of the culture of that example. You, know, you understand because like, I show you Nacho Libre, and you're like, oh, and you get it. Show that to a first century Jew, he'd be like, what? What is that? What's that stall that he's standing in? You know? even, even some people... Theologians, you know, really smart guys, I think, sometimes fail to understand certain phrases and things that Jesus says because Jesus speaks Hebrew to a Hebrew audience and Hebrew illustrations. It's written down in Greek, a different language. It's translated into English. And sometimes you lose a little bit of that in the translation. But don't worry. I'll do my best. I'll help you out. We'll be good. Right? Okay, good. I'll give you an example. Um, turn to the book of Genesis chapter 8. Some people that I have heard that are out there right now, they attack sound doctrine because they have an improper interpretation of what is said in Scripture. <laughs> like that, it's great. <laughs> they have an improper interpretation of what is actually... Oh, no, I didn't mean you had to get up. I was just playing. Oh. Yeah, now I feel bad. I feel bad. 
it's okay, I'm really sorry. Anyway, um, and sometimes people have, it, and so it leads to very, very bad theology. There is this thing today called the emergent, with a T, emergent church. Uh, it's very different than the emerging church, but the emergent church, uh, it's headed by guys like uh, Brian McLaren, if you guys know who that is. And what they do is they're involved in this thing called open theism. It's called process theology. And you're like, what? Right, okay. Process theology is essentially that God is trapped in time. He's very smart, but he's just like you and I. But he's very, very smart and very, very powerful. And God is in process like you and I are in process. They make God much smaller than he is. Okay? That is not God. Okay? God stands above time. He is all-powerful. But they use verses like this. Uh, Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. Now turn to Genesis chapter 30, verse 22. And it says, Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and he opened her womb. Now in English, this, the word remember implies what? You forgot something like take out the trash, do your homework, speeding's illegal, you know, stuff like that. So people look and they misinterpret you know, God and they think God's like us. Well, you can't get mad at me. You know, God forgets too. And that's not the point. For Hebrews, in Hebrew, this word remember, it has much deeper connotations. It means to do a favor for someone or to intervene on behalf of someone. And so what you'd see in this verse is that God intervened on behalf of Noah and the wild animals and the livestock that are with him in the ark. Then God did a favor for Rachel. He listened to her and he opened her room. I mean, what, what if God didn't remember Noah? We wouldn't be here. We'd all be dead. What if God didn't remember Rachel? There'd be no Hebrews. There'd be no Jesus. And by understanding the deepness behind these certain words, we gain a much greater insight into God's character, that we are lost without him, but he intervenes to save us, and he does a favor by saving you and I. And what we know about God doesn't shrink him now. It makes him bigger because we get it. You following? All right. So you guys are like... This is like school. I don't know what's going on today. So the parable I want you to see today is, is about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And there's, there's been a, a lot of damage done to this concept. Uh, people are like, well, I read this Hal Lindsey book, or I read this book by Tim LaHaye, and everybody's going to get left behind. And, you know, it's, I, guys, that has done so much to hinder the whole ideal of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Because people think, oh, I just want to get out of this trailer park called Earth and go somewhere else. God loves this place. He loves the people here. It's why you are still here. The kingdom of heaven in Jewish mindset would be here and now in this place. Uh, turn to the book of Mark. Chapter 1. Verse 15, Jesus says this, The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, people take this word near, and they look at this and say, Oh, well, near that, that means after death, if I just believe. But not necessarily. In Greek, the word is in Gaikin. I think I, there you go, okay, it's great. And it means almost here or about to appear. But a Hebrew equivalent, which Jesus probably would have used, would have been karab, which means to come up or to be, or to be with. In Greek, it's like, it's not yet here. But in Hebrew, it's the opposite. It is here. And what this tells you is that God's kingdom, what God wants to do by Jesus calling the kingdom of God, is now in the lives of his people. But the church believes in it's only some future event. Okay? It's only 
there. We have given up our responsibility and the calling to make a difference in the world in which we live. Because we think, oh, it's just there. And the kingdom of God is God ruling in the hearts and the lives of men. And we live within that kingdom. So, how's that for an introduction? We're good? Okay. I mean, the kingdom of God is one of the most important concepts that Jesus ever preached about. He preaches more about it than anything else in Scripture. The kingdom of God, because it's important to them. Uh, Turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 13. This is where we're going to go. I think you're just flipping around a lot of Matthew this morning, so you should be okay. One book. We're good. Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 44. I'm waiting. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Now, scholars will tell you all kinds of different things that this means, that Jesus is talking about the cost of discipleship. Yes, he is. He actually is in this. Uh, They're talking about the value of the kingdom of God. That's what they're talking about, too. Uh, What price is a disciple willing to pay? Yes, they're talking about that. Uh, Is it even possible to measure the worth of the kingdom of God? These are all concepts wrapped up in here. And this parable speaks about discipleship, but it is much more stressing the joy of discovering the kingdom of God. The joy of it. Now, Jesus, as we have seen, is a very, very good teacher, and he's trying to groom his disciples into being good teachers as well. In this society, a disciple of a rabbi wanted to be just like the rabbi. They wanted to teach like the rabbi, and you had to trust your rabbi implicitly. So I have my own sort of agata this morning to give you an idea of what trusting somebody looks like. Okay? See how this works. Basically, what happened to you is you saw the fear. So before you can even think about any real driving, you got to make friends with that fear. So, get the car. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a cougar in the car. I put it in there. you got to learn to drive with the fear. <laughs> Nothing more frightening than driving with a live cougar in the car. Where'd you get that thing? I trapped it. Been keeping it in my bathroom at the motel, feeding an old pizza. Now, I'm not getting in that car. Listen, if you're calm, that wondrous big cat will be calm too. But if you're scared, that beautiful death machine will do what God made it to do. Namely, eat you with a smile on his face. God will just follow me wherever I go. He's looking at you. So you're saying if I just calm down, the cougar will be okay? Yeah. Come on, son, you can do it. Come on. See, that might make a little more sense to you because that is what is storytelling to our culture, right? This whole idea of trust. You have to trust your teacher. Jesus says, get in the car. So I'll be like, 
Okay, we'll get in the car. I mean, the disciples would do that if Jesus said, get in the car. It's this whole idea of trust. They wanted to be just like their teachers. They trusted him in everything. They lived like he lived. They wanted to do what he did, and they wanted to teach just like he taught. I mean, this parable is part of Jesus' way of taking and grooming his disciples so they will faithfully transmit the worth and the value of the kingdom that he is talking about. Abraham Herschel, who is a Jewish scholar, he says that Greeks learned in order to comprehend, the Hebrews learned in order to revere. So the whole point for a Hebrew is learning to revere God's name, the honor God. And so Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is expensive. It will cost you everything you have, but the joy you find there overpowers every other hindrance, everything. Now, the early church fathers, the ones that came after Jesus up to about A.D., 500. Uh, they loved allegory. Everything you read is like, oh, this is an allegory of this or an allegory of that. It's like, what does I went down to the water mean? Oh, went down to the water means Jesus turns water into wine in the, in the book of John. And they're like, well, we're the vessels and we're filled with water. Jesus makes into new wine. Or there was a wedding and there was no wine left, so Jesus made some more wine. You know, it's, it, it's kind of interesting. Irenaeus, one of the original church fathers, uh, and I love a lot of things he writes, but he says this, For Christ is the treasure which was hidden in the field that is in this world, for the field is the world. Origen, another church father, says the field represents the scriptures and the treasure is Christ. Like, oh, wow, that sounds so good. No. Not, not so much. From a first century rabbinical perspective, Jesus would never have taught that he himself was a treasure that is accidentally discovered in a field. That's not what he does. This type of allegory to this totally robs the parable of what Jesus wants to say. Uh, this parable is tied to the teachings of Christ about the deepness of the kingdom of God. In Matthew 6.33, Jesus says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And so if you stay in line with Jesus' teaching, he says that selling all would be an illusion to seeking first his kingdom, giving up everything in your life to find that rule in the reign of Christ in our lives. The parable is about the essence of God's rule, giving up everything. For Jesus, you know, like most Jewish learning of that day, the vision of God and his will are distinctive. Everything points to the rule in the reign of God. Uh, turn to the book of Matthew chapter 19. Jesus is asking his disciples to surrender all for the kingdom of heaven. And, and so what you do essentially is that you surrender what rules you. You know, what, what rules you because you will never find joy in the things that rule you. You will only find joy in the kingdom of God. So at one point, Jesus is speaking to a young, rich guy who tells Jesus, I've kept all the commandments, which, believe me, is very, very hard to do. Okay? And so Jesus responds in Matthew 19, uh, verse 21. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Great line, loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter what? The kingdom of God. Now hear me here, okay? This is not an issue of rich and poor. This is an issue of what you love and value more than God. What do you love and value more than the kingdom of God? Are you willing to surrender your life to be controlled by money? Are you surrendering your life to be controlled by God? All things work in the book of Matthew together to give a view of God and his kingdom. And so there's a contrast here between in Jesus' story between a rich, uh, a rich merchant and a, and a poor man. And who do we identify with in typical stories like this? 
The poor guy. Right, well, we're poor. Yeah, that's, that's my team. Go, go poor guy, right? The poor guy has to sell everything he has to buy this field. It's like buying land in Santa Maria three years ago. And he sells everything he has just to buy some dirt. Well, the rich guy is considered rich because he travels all over the world looking for fine pearls. Jesus starts off this parable like this because it gets everybody involved. If you're rich or you're poor, you're involved. Because, oh, that speaks to me. You know, the, the poor guy had enough assets. He can mortgage some stuff, and he, and he bought this field. The rich guy, it's really enchanting because he travels the world to find really cool things. And who doesn't love a great story about buried treasure? That's why Pirates of the Caribbean was like so, and so great. It's, you know, it's exciting drama. It catches the imagination of rich and poor alike. Jesus is a great storyteller. He's great. And, and Jesus, this was, a, this was a play. It kind of looked like this. Um, the scene would open, you have like a, like a field worker or a car salesman or an HVAC engineer or a computer tech on his, on his way to work, and like so many listen to the story, and they would have like no expectancy of what they're going to find that day. They're just kind of going about their life. Or there's a rich guy, and he's traveling the world looking for the perfect pearl, the, the, the black pearl. I don't know. The, the most significant difference is their orientation to life because the rich man looks for treasure, the laborer has a chance to find. Yet, the whole parable ties them together because there's, they find this treasure and it's deeper than they can imagine. They both discover, they both sell, they both buy. The actions of what they do with the kingdom of God determine the outcome of their stories. What they do with the treasure they found. The sacrifice, risk involved in both people's stories could leave them completely destitute, or this treasure could be beyond measure. And Jesus says, it is beyond measure. The kingdom of God is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. What's the focus of the story? The treasure. And what does the treasure represent? The kingdom of God. Exactly. The joy found in the kingdom of God. Part of Jesus' point is that not everyone's going to find the treasure, but the treasure is accessible to all people. When you find the kingdom or it finds you, you must be willing to give up all to live in that kingdom, to find that joy, to have that treasure. And it's like the, the poor man and the merchant, you and I are kind of in the same boat because we have been confronted by this opportunity and the opportunity that we are confronted with the, with the kingdom of God calls for decisive action. Having this treasure is going to redirect our lives like it does for those in the parable. These are, these are action words. These are, these are find, sell, buy, seek first the kingdom. Action words, doing something. Jesus' teachings, I mean, most of us are never going to find buried treasure. And if you do, let me know. Okay, or find the perfect pearl. But what Jesus says is everybody can enter into the kingdom of God to live under God's rule, to live in his power, to find the joy that is there. Everybody is invited to willingly give up what rules you and place yourself within the kingdom of God and find the joy there. I mean, think about this. If you owned a piece of land and you never found any value in it whatsoever, you're like, oh, I just own this piece of dirt, and, and you decide to sell it one day, you know, back when the market's good, okay? And then and you sell it, and some guy buys it. And two weeks after they buy it, he strikes gold in the middle of that property. And you're like, oh, I'm kicking myself, you know. 
It's kind of like goes back to like the Egyptians and, and the Israelites when they were in slavery in Egypt. They, in uh, Exodus 14:5, they they let the Israelites go, and after they let them go, they start kicking themselves because all their slaves are gone. No one's going to do the work for them anymore. And they're like, "Oh, what do we do?" They didn't realize what they had in, until they lost it, right? And and some people run into me, and they and they wonder why I enjoy being married. They wonder why I'm busy all the time and I'm not completely cynical. And I always say this. I always say it is about Jesus. And they say you got to be kidding. And I'm like, no, it's about Jesus. It is about, there is this treasure that is open to them. But they either walk by it and ignore it, or they don't take the time to find Christ and invest and dig and mine that treasure that is right there available for them. The joy that Christ offers by living under the rule and the reign of who God is. They don't want to give up everything that they think they need to live under the rule and the reign of the kingdom of God. The the kingdom of God is infinitely beyond human value, yet it is still within our grasp. It is something we can attain. I mean, the, the people in this parable, it's like every average person who has stopped expecting something great and beautiful and out of the ordinary and wonderful, and yet God still shows up. And he does something, he's like, boom, and it's like, there's the kingdom of God. And it's like, what do I do with that? What do I do? Do you give up everything to live in it? Or do you keep going the way you're going and forget it? That's what Jesus is calling people to. Do you give it up or do you give up everything? Or do you give up the kingdom of God and go the direction that you're going? The kingdom of God is is about Jesus. It is about God. It is about his rule. It is about his life, his salvation, his purpose, his grace, his love, his goodness, his desire, his truth, his salvation. That's what it's about. And today, if you sit here and you're like, man, I don't got a lot of joy in my life. Well, you know what? The kingdom of God is available for you. And you can mine deep that treasure and live in that. You know, find out if God's kingdom is the priority in your life. Just like the guys in the story, what actions between you and God are going to determine the outcome of your story, of your agata? And that's one of the reasons why we do these baptisms. And I have everybody who gets baptized, they write their story. Because these are our stories. This is kind of like our agata. It helps people to understand what the rule and the reign of God means in people's lives. And how it changes us and makes us... And it's not that we never screw up and, you know, we're not idiots like everybody else every once in a while. But it is us coming under the rule and reign of God more and more daily in our lives. Surrendering ourselves to Jesus. And this is the place that, that we come every single week. And in one way or another, I get you guys here so that you ask yourself the question. You know, what is in your life ruling you if it's not the kingdom of God? What do you need to give up to be able to mine the treasure that God offers to you? I mean, this morning, if you don't know Jesus, I mean, give up yourself to know Him because what He gives you is so much deeper and makes you into the person you are supposed to be. If you do know Jesus, today is another day you know, where we find joy in His person. We walk deeper and farther because of the things that He has revealed to us and we remember Him and His kingdom by how we live. This is one of the most important concepts that Jesus ever preached about. He talks about it more than anything else the rule and the reign of God in the lives of men. And this is supposed to be a joyful, joyful thing. Um, Eric's going to come up and pray. And so we are going to worship...
God through taking communion. And we remember Christ's body and his blood that was broken and shed for us. And you break the cracker, you dip it in the wine or the grape juice. You remember Christ's body that was broken and, uh, and his blood that was shed for us. And, and we come to this place where we place ourselves under the rule and reign of Christ and say, I worship you because you have done this. You made it possible for me to re-enter a relationship with God again. We're going to worship God through songs. We're going to sing some songs and give you some time to reflect and figure out kind of where you're at. You know, to figure out where you are in the rule and the reign of God. We're going to be some elders in the back that are more than willing to pray for you. If it's like, you know what, I want to find this kingdom. I want to mine deep that treasure. They will pray with you and help you to do that. Uh, we're going to worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the side wall and in the very back of the room. And you can worship God through giving. And we're going to worship God through fellowship. We're going to hang out here a little bit. And hopefully you all come to the baptisms. It's going to be a lot of fun. And everybody in this room, if, you don't, if you're new, everybody in this room is a total knucklehead. Okay? They're, they are, and, and they love to laugh, and they're great people, and we just want to be a body under the rule and the reign of who God is going forward into this world to do what God calls us to do, and that is to love other people. And again, how you worship God is much more important outside these walls than in here because you are going to be what people see as the rule and the reign of God by how you live. So let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing us to be here this morning. Lord Jesus, you came and you ushered in your kingdom. Lord, you've, you've given us life by your spirit, Lord, that eternal life. And Lord, we know that one day your kingdom will reign and every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. Evil will be gone. Death will be abolished. But right now, Lord, your kingdom is alive and well in your people. Father, your spirit in us that allows us to live for you under your rule and your reign. I pray, Lord, that there would be no... Nothing in our life that would be more important, Father, that we would seek first your kingdom, your will. Father, we thank you that you've given us the power to live for you. So we just come to you and we ask, Lord, that you would show us the way, that you would lead us. We thank you for loving us so much. In Jesus' name, amen.